Michelle Dickinson and mental health. Uh, she has a great story. Uh, she's an author. She's a speaker. She did a great, great TED Talk. I encourage you to take a look at that. She had a, uh, a very trying childhood with a bipolar mother and uh, devoted her life to mental health. Uh, teenagers, she's moved to the, you know, the corporate environment. We can uh, look at it from the perspective of co-workers. Um, the term invisible disabilities, I never heard of it before before talking to Michelle, uh, but it's something we, we need to talk about more as a society. We need to know more about mental health. And we see a lot of stars, a lot of athletes, a lot of celebrities now kind of emerging and saying they have uh, mental uh, issues. And, uh, it's, it's a great discussion with Michelle Dickinson about, uh, about mental illness. Uh, what we can do. She does share her top five ways to you know, cultivate a, a, a great environment about mental illness as well. Uh, the first one is having a clear vision statement. Uh, we talk more about that. It's a great conversation. Michelle Dickinson, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Joey Pins. People ask me, how did I lose 130 pounds? The quick answer is always discipline. I started my business, wasn't paying attention to my health, was eating too much, you know, drinking too much sweets. My daughter was born. Next thing I know, I'm pre-diabetic, I have hypertension. I knew something had to change. Discipline. I, like many of you, have faced many challenges in your career, in your family, in your life, in your faith. How did you attack them? How did you approach them? How did you solve them, hopefully? It all had to have some degree of discipline. I'm also asked, how did you found and start a tech business that lasted over 25 years? Discipline. I was committed to it, enjoyed technology, didn't enjoy some aspects of it, but knew it was necessary. Discipline. Our podcast mission, how do we use discipline to better ourselves and society? Join me, please, as I talk to interesting people and discuss how they use discipline in their family and their passion and their careers and how it helped them. Our podcast vision, growth through learning from others. Joey Pins Discipline Conversations. It'll be light and serious. Join us, please. Thank you for consideration. Um, all kinds of different personalities and moods. So yeah, it was definitely something that shaped me. It taught me compassion. It taught me resilience. Um, but it also had me very angry about my childhood for many years until I did the work and I healed. So yeah, sorry, I started recording a little late, but yeah, that was talking about your mother when you were uh, how you would how you're introduced into into the bipolar world. It's just uh, you know I I I don't have a firsthand reference of it, but friends that I know that do, they always talk about how, how difficult it was and my goodness. And so you dedicated, I, 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 I don't want to take your thunder here. You dedicated, <laughs> you dedicated so much of your, of the last 20 years or so to the youth, to, to trying to help awareness in, uh, in mental illness. Yeah. It's, it's sort of been part of my healing journey, you know, like, um, I, I thought just because I came out okay, that like I arrived in society as a contributing human being that I, I was okay. But, you know, I think that was when the healing actually began for me. And I started to 
unpack all those emotions that we have in circumstances where we're not given a choice, you know, what our parents, how our parents were, how our parents raise us. So, yeah, I mean, that experience shaped me. It shaped me in a lot of ways, negative and positive. But I was, it all happened, you know, I was working in, I was working in the pharmaceutical industry and somebody nominated me to tell my story because mm. over lunch I had happened to tell the story about my childhood. And then I get nominated and I'm sort of thrust onto the big red dot to tell the story. <laughs> and I tell the story and like people just start coming out of nowhere wanting to talk to me because there's like this permission and relatedness that shows up when we tell our stories. And that's exactly what happened. And um, I was like, well, wow, if a 10 minute TED talk could cause more open conversations and have people feel less alone, then what could I do if I wrote a book? So that's when I went and wrote the book. And um, that sort of catapulted me in an entirely different direction. Um, but it also was incredibly cathartic to really get the words on paper and start to heal from everything I had been through. That's amazing. And at the end of the TED talk, you actually, you, you forgive your mother, which was very touching and very moving because without that, it wouldn't have shaped the way you've decided to lead your life. It's, it's a very interesting thing that you say, because if I would have written my book, even like two years before, it would have been a very ugly story. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, forgiveness can come only when you can step out of your own experience and step into what life might be like for the other person. And so I was very curious about myself and put myself through a lot of self-discovery work and Landmark was one of them. And I was in the Landmark forum actually. And I realized that my mom, I had always focused on being at the effects of her abuse because, because that's what we do. We, we focus on well, you know, she did this, therefore I felt that, or I felt that, or I felt this. And I was able in that program to step outside of my own experience and try to imagine what life was like for her as a mother trying to raise a daughter and navigate all of these demons in her head, all of this mental illness. And I found compassion for that which is something I could never do when I was so focused on, she did this to me, she did that to me, she compromised this in my life, she destroyed that, you know? And so, but that had to come in time. And I carried for many years, a lot of anger and resentment and frustration toward her. Um, so yeah, so, but I had to do the work. I had to, I had to really get, get that healing going before I could sit down and write my story. Incredible. Uh, you, you mentioned in one of your classes that you took, the professor said, Hey, whoever's, uh, you know, 19 to 22 stand up and yeah. Hey, these were your parents. This is what your parents were when they had you. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. How insightful. Like, yeah. Like they don't, we don't come with owner's manuals, right? Mm -hmm. Like parents do the best they can. And I think, you know, when people say, Oh, well, you should see my childhood. I, my 10 times worse than yours. Mm -hmm. I had a parent that did this and I had a parent that did that. And it's like, we're trying to compare battle wounds and it's, it, you got to stop and remember that your parents are the product of their parents and their parents are the product of their parents. And they, they don't know what they're doing. They're doing the best they can. They're not intentionally, deliberately setting out to mess you up. But unfortunately, 
oftentimes that happens. Right. Right. Yeah, because their parents were treated very differently. I mean, my father's an Italian immigrant. I'm sure you've got a lot of Italians there in New Jersey. And, you know, growing up in Italy, he got his first pair of real shoes when he was 12 years old. You know, so it's, you know, I, I can't relate to that. And we're, no. I think I'm a little older than you, but I, it's very, it's very, very hard. And your commitment to the, to the, the statistics that you have on your, on your various social medias that one of them was, uh, yeah, 20% of the youth, um, 13, what was it 13 to 28 living, they're living with mental health condition in their house. Yeah. In silence. Yes. Yes. It's. And, and, you know, you factor in the pandemic now and it's got to be so much worse. I mean, because if you look at the data now, they're saying uh, 42% of the global workforce has experienced this decline in their mental health since the pandemic. 42%, right? So that's a, you know, the, the kids, it's a whole other story. These kids are being, you know, having to navigate this in masks and out of school and isolation. We're, we are human beings that need connection, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yet we don't talk about it, right? Like we, we don't talk about it. We, we, you know, are far more comfortable bringing a casserole to someone who's gotten a diagnosis for cancer than we are addressing someone who's just trying to navigate the challenges of life. There is no health without mental health one of your, one of your phrases there. And, and, and why is that? Why, why is it? Why is it that we don't talk? Does it, is a perception is the stigma that you're, that you're weak, that you can't handle it? Well, like, why is that? Why can't, why aren't we talking about it? Yeah. You know, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's, um, generations, societal norms. I think it, there's a lot of fear and embarrassment around mental health still. Um, you know, people feel immediately like they're going to be judged, you know, they're going to be, um, they're afraid of the kind of treatment they're, they're going to be given. They're afraid of, um, you know, looking at men, men, men are groomed to not show their emotions or, 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 you know, show any weakness, you know, and they're the ones that are struggling equally as much. So I don't know. It's also the picture, social, social media and, the news. Uh oh. Oh God. What had just happened? No, I can still hear you. Nothing happened. Okay. My screen is all weird. Okay. Sorry. Oh, no um, it's also, I'm sorry. It's also what the media does. It's the news, right? So we see shootings happening in the news. Unfortunately, mm. you know, the person might have had an undiagnosed or untreated mental illness. So then that shapes, well, oh my goodness, if you're, if you are crazy, you're going to shoot up a you're going to shoot up a building, right? So there's a lot of, I think, opportunity for people in the media to do a better job, you know, I guess communicating what is going on instead of painting this picture. I mean, I think, also think we're in a very exciting time, right? With COVID, COVID has really forced us to acknowledge our humanness and how hard it is to be quarantined. And in the Olympics, we have amazing athletes who are opening, opening up and saying, you know what, anxiety or depression or, you know, all of this pressure is too much. I need a break. So that gives us permission to say, huh, if hmm. they can open up and say that, then why can't I? 
Incredible. And I, I don't, I think we, in order to talk about mental health, we also have to talk about pharmace, pharmacology, pharmaceuticals, right? Because mm -hmm. they play a role there. And uh, does it help? Does it hurt? What's your experience there? You know, as someone who spent 19 years yeah. in the pharmaceutical industry, um, I have to tell you, I think that there's a place for everything. And, and it's not one size fits all, you know, and, and not all drugs are bad and not all drugs are good. Right. What it comes down to is we are complex human beings with complex emotions, complex histories, um, certain types of traumas that are unique to us that might not be a trauma to someone else. And it's about communication with a therapist and getting the best treatment for you. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, all treatments are going to work for you. Right. It, it, it's definitely a unique case by case scenario and something that you should be working with your therapist on. Will there ever be a drug that removes mental illness? It's a very interesting question. I think we've come into this part of society and into this generation where we're accustomed to leaning on hmm on things like drugs, you know, to relieve us. But in reality, life is always going to come at us. So we're always going to be having those experiences that have us, you know, in, in sad moments and in happy moments. And I think that emotions are part of the ride of life. So to say a pill to remove mental illness, mm. you know, a mental imbalance that's going to happen in our lifetime. And is, is that best resolved through a pill? I don't know. Maybe it's also resolved through our lifestyle and what we're doing every day and how we're preserving our well-being and what we're doing to nourish our bodies and our minds, you know? Interesting. How about natural supplements and vitamins and things? Does, do these help in, in, in any of the mental illness issues? You know, one of the things that I teach in my resilience program, and I just want to say, I'm not a clinician and I don't play one on TV mm, at all. Okay. What I do do in my programs and my resilience programs is I remind people of the mind gut connection. Hmm. So when we're eating poorly, that's sabotaging our, our mental health. The brain needs to eat health. We need to eat so that our brain gets nutrients so that we feel good. So I'm always promoting a diet rich in nutrients and, and, you know, good vegetables and good fruits and good wholesome food, because we need that for, our, for our balance. Our brain needs that for our brain balance. Um, so I always am advocating for check your diet. It could be sabotaging how you're feeling, mm. you know, mm. like if you're eating processed foods and sugars and caffeines, and as they say, dead foods, how do you expect your brain to fire and how, and that's going to correlate to how you feel your emotions. And then that's going to correlate to if you're feeling depressed or uplifted. It's amazing what a, what a good diet will correct, you know, it really uh, is. it's amazing. You know, I, I, I've been taught the three pillars or, you know, diet, exercise, and sleep, you know, yeah. and if you can, if you could surround your life around mm -hmm. those, I mean, it should correct a, a lot. Uh, is depression a mental illness? I believe it's 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 di it's a clinical diagnosis, hmm. um, for sure. 
you know, do we have days when we're low or when we're down? I think, yeah, absolutely. Is it, is it clinical depression? I mean, um, for me, I personally was diagnosed with depression when I was going through my divorce. Um, and I thought I was just having a bad week, a bad few weeks, you know, couldn't get out of bed, wasn't really feeling myself, but my doctor was like, no, he's like, you, you definitely are dealing with, um, a life event and life events can actually take us down and have us deal with depression temporarily. But then mm-hmm. there's like the chronic depression and, you know, severe depression, um, that people live with and have to medicate themselves for. So yeah, it depends. Incredible. So you mentioned that you're not a clinician. Are you more of a coach? I'm a well-being strategist. So what I do is I work with organizations to recenter their employees, hmm. to preserve their well-being, to remind them of all the things we do have control over. Because if you listen to the news, it's very easy to become resigned about what's going on in the world. It's very easy to become resigned about what control you have. You think you have to go to the doctor. You have to get a prescription. But there's actually things you can do. Like you just mentioned the three pillars. Hmm. Are you eating? Are you exercising? Are you sleeping? You know, what are your, what's your sleep hygiene like? What's your, um, what are you doing for stress management? You know, there's all those things that we do have complete control over that we can we, we can do our part to help us, to help ourselves. Very interesting. And I think we're both parents. Uh, I certainly am. I, I think you are as well. And, you know, to make sure this pattern doesn't repeat, we have to kind of take care of ourselves before we can take care of our, our offspring and our, and our peers. It's, it's so important to model. I say this all the time in my programs because I've had so many, um, employees in the programs that I've delivered in the corporate setting come to me and say, I'm worried about my teenager. I'm worried about my young one. You know, all of a sudden that now they're home on screen all the time. They don't interact with anyone. I'm worried about them. What do I do? How do I, how do I help them? The best way you can help them is by owning your mental and physical health and, Mm. and demonstrating to them, role modeling to them. I'm going to talk about how I'm feeling. I'm going to go for a walk because I don't feel good. I'm going to, you know, uh, do something that I love, do my hobby because I'm not feeling a hundred percent. And I know that's going to make me feel better. So it's role modeling. Kids watch what we do more than listen to what we say. And if we have a healthy relationship and we're we're modeling good mental health hygiene, they're going to learn that that's how, that's how we do it. Incredible. Another statistic you had, Michelle, was that the CDC has announced that the, the number three cause of uh, teenage death is suicide. Yes. And that's an old statistic, actually. Um, I, I know that suicide has gone up throughout the pandemic with, with teens. Um, and I think it's like one in, th- it used to be one in three Americans are dealing with depression or anxiety. No, one in five. It used to be one in five. Now it's one in three you're dealing with depression or anxiety. Hmm. So you just, you know, you can imagine what it's like for children um, and suicide. And, and so, but the problem is, in my opinion, is that if parents are not comfortable talking about mental health, if parents are not comfortable talking about going to a doctor, if parents aren't comfortable talking about depression or feeling sad or their emotions, 
how do they expect their child to come to them when they're not doing so well? They're going to conceal it just like the parent conceals it because their shame or embarrassment. They're going to model that. They're going to follow that. So the best thing we can do is have an open narrative when, when we're not doing well. Like, I just need, I need time for me and help them see that that's okay instead of stifling it and keeping it within themselves or managing it through other unhealthy vices. Wow. You mentioned also, uh, I saw there was an actual app that a lot of teenagers can actually go to that helps with mental illness. It's kind of a peer, anonymous peer app. There's a lot of peer apps out there um, for kids to engage in. Um, there's so many of them. I can't remember which one you're referring to. Um, uh, 18%? 18% is a great one. That's actually for adults, but there's oh. another one. There's another one for kids. It could be seven cups. And, um, and then I have another uh, friend who has an app that she's developing. She's a clinician and I can't remember the name of it, but that's, that's another one that is coming out and it's geared to keep kids connected, talking about how they're doing. Hmm. With a mental health theme? No, actually it's just, it's just connecting them in a safe space that isn't like a public forum, like an Instagram. It's like a private community where it's safe they're, they're, it's monitored and it's safe for them to just be them. Interesting. So it seems now you've kind of made the shift to the workplace, to adults where, you know, we have to work with people. And, you know, I've certainly had clients and coworkers and employees that were bipolar. Uh, I was never officially given the diagnosis, but you could tell. Uh, and why that shift? You know, it's something, um, so I, when I was working at my, my fortune 50 company, I, that was when I was diagnosed with depression hmm. and I, I don't feel like I, um, was supported very well. And I hmm. said to myself, you know, how many other people out there are just trying to put their game face on and go to work and, and leave what they're dealing with at home. When in reality we bring our full selves to work. So isn't there an opportunity to elevate compassion and understanding and, and have people be able to request accommodations like you would if you broke your leg and you were in a wheelchair and you needed accommodations? Like, why don't we have more cultures of empathy and compassion for people with invisible disabilities? Hmm. So that was why I set out to, to do something about it. Cause I, I thought, you know, if I could tell my story, create more, relatedness similar to my TED talk, then more people would feel comfortable being themselves. And then I could work with organizations to do things to move the needle around their level of empathy and compassion in their culture. Hmm. Um, so that's what I set out to do. The pandemic came and then I was quickly asked to help employees with resiliency and navigating, you know, loneliness being quarantined and navigate COVID fatigue after it's going on for 10 plus months. You know, like, how do we deal with that? So that's how I've been helping my, my clients. Now I'm, I'm focusing more on helping people leaders engage in a safe conversation with their direct report. If they hmm. sense something is off, the biggest challenge we have is people leaders are so afraid that they're going to make, they're going to say the wrong thing. They're going to make the wrong step. They're going to violate privacy they're so afraid, so they don't do anything, and that person could be struggling. So I'm really out to help leaders be more empowered around 
having those conversations, but not being too invasive, just, you know, being genuinely curious and, and listening and demonstrating compassion and modeling good mental health hygiene. It's so important for a leader to model what that looks like if they want their team to take care of themselves. So there's a lot of opportunity, especially now we're going into God knows what with this pandemic. Yeah. We need we need more people to feel empowered and and preserve their their well being. You actually kind of cite out five steps uh, for the for the culture uh, and compassion. The first one is mm-hmm. having a clear vision and yep. commitment. Yep, exactly. So there's there's a couple of things that I learned um, when I was in my Fortune 50 company, and you know. One of the things was you have to have a remit at the top level of the organization that we're going to be a truly inclusive organization Hmm. of people of all abilities. And that includes invisible disabilities, which oftentimes includes mental illness, autism, um, all of those challenges that we can't see. So you have to have a remit. You have to also, you know, have policies that support that remit, policies that back that. I'm sorry, using the term um, remit. Like a, that um, support the, the declaration. Like, like if, so we declare we are an inclusive organization. So uh, we now have policies that back that things that we can fall back and say, well, that's how we're going to execute that. Even um, I have my own mental health series and I interviewed a CEO, Daryl Toll, who talked about the power of going first, having a leader in your organization openly talk about their life and their challenge. Like that can set a powerful tone in the organization that it's okay to not be okay. So there's that. Um, There's a bunch of other ideas that um, I learned throughout my experience that can really help shift a culture. Yeah, robust and easy, accessible mental health support, just being able to get basic, support. right? Basic. Like, no one wants to pick up the phone after weeks of trepidation to be told, we can't see you for three months. Mm. Access is very important. Incredible. Education and training, like you just mm-hmm. mentioned. Yeah. Structured employee peer support community. Mm-hmm. Yep. Leveraging your people. People don't realize that the power of leveraging your own people, right. you know, there, when you have an employee who's navigated depression and they've come back to the workplace, they are a beacon of hope for anyone else who might be struggling because they see that they made it to the other side and they're okay. And they're, and they're one of them. They're in their workplace. They're, you know, you're, we're on the same team and you, you're doing okay. So, you know, talk to me about what that was like, because I'm terrified. So peer groups are so powerful. And the, this is a silly question, but obviously the pandemic has made this worse because we're not physically closer to each other and we're isolated. And while some may believe they're thriving in it, I mean, there's just a certain amount of camaraderie, even productivity when we're together. Oh yeah, absolutely. We have to get creative and stay connected. You know, I am an entrepreneur. I live alone. I have my dogs. Um, I was feeling it too. Isolation is like, it's, it's, and I'm an introvert. So Mm. you'd think I would have been in heaven, right? But like, I'm an introvert. So, but I missed the connection. So you have to get creative. You have to find ways to connect. You have to use our technology. 
Um, but the challenge is when we're not feeling good, we want to just isolate. We want to like curl up in a ball on the couch and forget about the world. But that's when we have to actually force ourselves to reach out. So we have to stay connected when we're not doing so good. It's so important. Yeah, it really, really is. Another thing you mentioned in your TED talk was that you realized that some at one point that you had this book in you and you had to get out. And that's the the breaking into my life, your memoir. Yeah. Yes, yes. So the book, I released the book a couple of years ago, and it was really um, with the mission to humanize mental health, because if I could step people through what it's like to love someone with a mental illness, then maybe they could see them as the human beings that they are, because they're human beings. You know, just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean you are the diagnosis. Mm. So I really wanted people to see what I saw in my mother looking back and and she was a loving, caring mom, and she had bipolar disorder. So I thought if I could humanize that experience, I could reach more people so they didn't feel, um, so they understood it, and then those who loved someone with a mental illness felt like they weren't so alone. That was my goal. Yeah, very good. So so some concrete advice. If we have peers or even friends that we think you know, our borderline, you know, and it's, so that's a very, very tough, you know, discussion yeah. and navigation there, you know, uh, they're good people, they're good friends, but that you could just tell that, you know, there's just something off there. And, uh, we, you know, bipolar is probably overdiagnosed all the time, but how do you have yeah. that discussion? But is it though? So this is the problem. And mm. I love that you brought this up because I think a lot of us try to put the hat on of the clinician. Mm. What are they, what do they have? It's not our business what they have. What our business is to extend our heart and be compassionate and listen and help them get to where they need to get to for support. That's it. That's it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to diagnose it. You just have to be there and listen and be the one friend who is courageous enough to step up and say, how are you doing? unlike the other people who are looking away because they're terrified hmm. that they have to fix it or they're assuming someone else is going to help them. So I always say you don't have to do that. All you have to do is listen and bridge them to getting care hmm. and, and, and just extend your heart. That's the greatest thing that we can do for anyone who we suspect is suffering. Have you done that? Have you had cases? Yeah. I mean, I think that we all have the friend that we're always a little bit worried about. And I, and I, I always check in on my friends, even the ones that appear to be bulletproof, you know, the ones that we think are okay. They're the ones that most of the time no one is checking on. Um, so yeah, I'm the one that's reaching out and going, Hey, just checking in on you. How are you doing? Are you, you hanging in there? You need anything? And, uh, even if they don't take me up on it, they know that I'm there. I'm planting seeds so they know that they're never alone, that they can always reach out to me. Very interesting. And should we get, I'm just trying to think how to word this. Should we know where they can get help and say, have you ever considered talking to somebody about this? I mean, is that overstepping boundaries? No, I think that if you, so we've all had moments and I think you know, if you come at it from a place of judgment and mm. and you come at it from a place of it's this big thing to talk to someone, it's going to land that way. Right. But if you come at it from a space of I once was was dealing with depression 
I once dealt with it. I once dealt with severe anxiety. There, did I ever tell you about the time when I got dumped by this person and I was like in the fetal position for a week? Like, did I ever tell you about that? Cause that was rough. So if you extend a little bit of yourself to them, then they feel less alone. Um, and if we can just, you know, have there be nothing wrong with talking to someone, right? Like it can, it doesn't have to be a psychotherapist. It could be, it could be a counselor. It could be, you know, a nurse. It could be someone, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you have to go to a specialist in, you know, psychopharmacology. Like, no, it just talking about our problems, our struggles, our emotions, our humanness um, is very, very cathartic. And people need to not have a barrier between hmm. suffering and isolation and reaching out and talking to someone. Yeah, you just got to kind of humanize it, you know, and what if it's somebody like a, like a very, I guess it's really the same answer I would suspect is that what if it's a loved one? What if it's a relative? What if it's a, a mother or a daughter or a brother or a sister? It's the same, really the same answer. Yeah, just giving them permission to, to acknowledge, you know, that if this is compromising their joy or their, their day to day, you know, their enthusiasm for life, it's not worth it you know, and just giving them permission to return to the joyful person they know them to be. Now, what if we extend it to strangers, like, you know, the homeless or to, you know, we've all seen, you know, New yeah. York City's right in between us. Michelle. I know. So, you know, we've seen, we see this many, I mean, let's, 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 let's give you a magic wand. I mean, how, how do we get these people help? Yeah, it's, you know, it is, it's such a crazy time right now. I think about, you know, when COVID hit and the amount of homeless um, in New York City, you know, the restaurant closures, mm. the uh, the tragedies of suicides that were happening. I had a friend that lived in the city and had to just leave the increase in drug use yeah. um, because we were all just, they were all just trying to escape reality because it wasn't pretty. You know, I think there's so much around this topic that needs to be discussed. I think, you know, you think about the the prison system, you think about the healthcare system, um, all of this. There's so much opportunity, um, and I believe that we shouldn't write any human being off. Everyone deserves care. You know, everyone deserves a chance. Um, I think we need more healthcare workers. I think we need more more um, people willing to help other people, right. um, counselors, therapists, uh, in reality, because um, a lot of these people who are homeless struggle with mental illnesses, and, and they are forgotten about, and that's, it's not, we're better than that to forget about them, you know? It's such a serious issue, you know, I spend some time on the West Coast as well, and Yes. My daughter's oh, wow. in Los Angeles, you know, and I was just in Seattle and, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, there's tents everywhere, you know, and, um, how much is mental illness there? I, I, I don't know. Nobody really has the answer, but I'm going to suspect it's pretty high. Yeah. Um, and how do we reach them? You know? And, uh, like you said, we're, I don't know, the richest con country in the world and we can't, you know, we can't help them. And, is it getting better? Are we talking about it more? These kinds of discussions, you know, that we're having yeah. today, is, is it getting better? Your TED Talks, you know, your books, people yeah. like you. 
you know, I, I, every day I run into some, to someone else who's just as passionate about this as I am. Mm. And every day we see in the news, some other celebrity or some other athlete that it's open, opening up and talking about it. I have hope. I definitely have hope, Joe. I think, I think with more and more people talking about it and gosh, this whole COVID experience has really, um, more and more people are talking about it. I think that is the only silver lining to COVID is that people are really present to their emotional well-being. And that is a gift because if more people are affected, then more we have more of the ability to create sustainable change. Hmm. Um, so I think, it, I think we're on the brink of something powerful with more people talking about it. Um, and we have generations behind us, the younger generations, they talk about their emotions. Yeah, they do. They talk about it more than we do. Like, you know, Gen, yeah, like Gen Z, um, they have no problem talking about it. They have no problem in the workplace demanding better care. They have no problem talking about, you know, well, I need for my mental health, I need to do this. It's like, it's great. It's forcing the needle to move, which is wonderful. Yeah, to address these invisible disabilities, and we you you mentioned athletes. You know, we have just the Olympics where Simone Biles, the greatest gymnast yeah. of all time, backed out of events. I mean, I think yeah. ten years ago, this would have you know there would have been an outroar. This is unacceptable. Uh, we have the tennis player Osaka there who says, "I'm not going to yeah. go to press conferences. There's too much, you know. I have to deal with some things." And uh, I. I think it's a step in the right direction. We hear even rappers say, you know, I have mental illness issues. I mean, this is, this is all, we, we would have never heard about this years ago. Yeah. yeah. It gives us permission. You know, I, I, I think about, I mean, those women are courageous. You mm. get all the way to the Olympics and mm. you own it and you talk about it. It's like they are, they are amazing crusaders to do that, to open and to, and to, to do that. I think about the Philadelphia Eagle who, so many men are watching football and we have a crisis with men and suicide. Like to see a Philadelphia Eagle say anxiety pulled me off the field. What is that? That is such a ripple that they've, that he created amongst men to just acknowledge. And so for the men out there and for the, the women who care for men out there, there's a great website called um, mantherapy.org. It is a great resource uh, for men it's a silly, silly website, but it gets men thinking about their mental health and it gets women able to support their men. Humor is a good introduction for men to get involved in things, you know, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you're right. Football, which is so masculine, which is so yeah. over the top and, you know, uh, no wimps here, you know, we're, and for that, you know, for that athlete to come out and say that I, again, I, I think it's a step in the right direction. And I, I think with, people like yourself out there, you know, and uh, more discussion about it, it's, it's only going to help. It's only going to help. I'm, 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 I'm optimistic, especially after this conversation. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Anything else we can do as just the general public to support it, to like, what can we do about talk about it more is certainly the most important thing, right? Yeah. Talk about it more. Own your, own your humanness, recognize mm -hmm. it's okay to not be okay. And and, and talk about it, right? Like talk about when you're not doing so well. Um, because I think we, we have more of an impact when we model it, right? Like it's so, 
you know, it, it used to be taboo to acknowledge your emotions, like, and talk about openly, you know, oh, I, I you know, I take a antidepressant or whatever, you know, but let's, let's just start talking more openly about it, normalize it for our own circles, you know, and so people in our own circles have a healthier relationship to their well-being and open up and talk about it that we can create a ripple effect by mm. just doing it within our own little families and, and, and friend communities. What an important, yeah, what an important piece of advice there. Even with our communities, it'll ripple out in our workplace, it'll ripple out. And yeah, yeah if we kind of keep, keep that there, hopefully it can, it can go out and, and again, just talk about it. And it would be great if, you know, media would talk about it more because you never hear about it. Um, right. And it never, or seldom, I shouldn't say, right? It's getting better with some of the athletes and some of the celebrities, but certainly the news doesn't doesn't push right. it at all. Michelle Dickinson, what a what an absolute pleasure. How can people get in touch with you? We mentioned your book. Please mention again. You have a couple of websites and a couple of uh, social media contacts. Sure, sure. So um, if you're interested in the workplace mental health work that I do, you'll go to careforyourpeople.com. And you can find out a little bit about how, um, how what I do in the workplace. Um, my book is Breaking Into My Life, and it's available on Amazon. Um, you can also follow me on my other website, which is michelledickinson.com. And you can learn about my story there. And you can learn about the five steps to creating a compassionate workplace. Um, and from there, you can link to all of my social media, my Instagram, my Facebook, my LinkedIn, uh, my Twitter, and I'm happy to engage with anyone who wants to chat. I'm, I'm always, I love hearing from people. Michelle, thank you so much for your time. You've got a great story. I love what you're doing and keep up the great work. And, uh, if I can help at all, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me today. Be well. Bye now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening and or viewing Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations. Please share this episode with one or two of your friends who you think may benefit from the episode. Our website, www.joeypins.com. There you find lots of resources and you could join our mailing list. Please follow us on all our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Podcast information, the video version of our podcast is on YouTube. Please subscribe. Audio is on all major podcasting platforms. Please follow them. And if you like it, please consider giving five-star rating. Would really appreciate that. Would you like to financially support the podcast? You can go to our Patreon site. Consider five, ten, or twenty dollars a month. There's all kind of plans that we have there. It's like a one-time payment. What is this podcast episode worth to you? You be the judge. You can go to our PayPal account to do that as well. Thank you again for listening or watching Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversation.